0: This week on the Back Table Podcast, I, I actually think that why not dilute it twice and be more patient and just takes yeah. less amount of particles, especially some of the particles that are used in the market. They have different compressibility requirement. They may uh, jam a little bit more. So uh, I would I would say my personal uh, preference would be to dilute it twice and inject much much uh, longer to get to that same yeah. result. Hello everyone and welcome to the Back Table
1: Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic, let me first say a quick word from our sponsor, Gerbay. Gerbay is expanding further into the field of interventional radiology. Their innovative secure reflux-controlled microcatheter has micro-slits on the distal tip. Flow dynamic principles create a fluid barrier of filtered contrast media, helping reduce the risk of micro-shear reflux and associated non-target embolization. Enable flow-directed embolization with Gerbet's secure microcatheter. Visit com slash USA for more information. And please let them know you heard about it on the Backtable Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about geniculate artery embolization. And I'm honored to welcome our guest, Dr. Jafar Golzarian from the University of Minnesota. Thank you for coming on uh, and
0: joining us today and taking the time to do this. Thank you so much, Aaron. And Mike, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. And um, as I was saying earlier, congrats for starting uh, this um, podcast, I think it's a very, very useful uh, tool for all all of us, um, especially in the time of COVID where we have not much to do. So I think it's very helpful. Thank you. We,
1: you know, we're always looking for feedback and, and ways to do this better, but, you know, I, I can return those compliments to you because, uh, you know, Guest has done an incredible job of maintaining this superb educational content during. Uh, a global pandemic, and it, you know, I mean the online content especially has been incredible. You know I know i'm I'm not alone in having watched a lot of the the webinars, and in particular, you know, I want to give a quick shout out to Helen Vo, who is just an amazing ambassador for your organization. What has that been like? you know,
0: planning everything during this? I and mean, you guys have have done an unbelievable job. Thank you so much yeah, i think um I think we very early on we realized that um, this is a good time for us to look at a way to keep the communication, especially at the beginning of this experience in March. So we had a lot of discussion with Mark and Helen, and actually John Kaufman was the one who helped us initiate that by saying, hey guys, don't you want to do something on COVID? And we say, yes, but not only COVID, we need to do much more. And so, and you talked about Helen, we are really lucky to um, have Helen on board. We uh, had a lot of discussion with Helen and she joined us as an executive commu- executive director of guest last september and she has been phenomenal in terms yeah. of organizing those uh, webinars and professionalism and the hard work. It's just amazing how she she was successful to get that to the next level so You know, I think um, it was a whole teamwork and we we thought that there was a gap and we tried to just uh, be a little bit more active at the time where we were all uh, at home and didn't know what to do. It's pretty remarkable. I mean,
1: the the guest meets virtual event, if I'm quoting this incorrectly, I I think you had about 2,000 guests from over 100 countries, which is an incredible
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it shows that especially you know in every crisis there are some some lessons to be learned and some opportunities. And what we realize is that you know people across the world they they all have the same needs, the same uh, questions. And uh, this virtual platform allowed us to reach out to much more than the usual people who can travel or who have the time to travel. And so with this guest uh, virtual we. We really saw the uh, importance of this type of networking, and uh, yeah, close to two thousand people joined, and uh, and we had um, a good support uh, from our friends from industry, so we could offer the live event for free, and then uh, we have a lot of on-demand sessions. and I really want to thank uh, the um, the faculty because you guys know how hard it is to to um, Organize something and invite people. And then, especially when you want to do 140 faculty with 22 different sessions that has to be recorded, have to be recorded. Almost every single faculty, there were maybe one or two, but every other faculty stepped up and they agreed to find a time on a Saturday or Sunday on the evening to record those things. So, we have been very lucky. We, we have a great community in IR and good people and they are they have been all very helpful Because we could have not done it without all of these people and a sp- really a special thanks to all of our international faculty i don't know if you have seen some of those uh, master class that dr arai from japan has per- have performed yep. gareth skin of course from uh, albany so they, they have been a lot of great uh, great input to the meeting so this is really a big thank you to all the faculty who helped with the guest
1: Certainly, a lot of great input and a lot of great content, which has been the norm for guests for a long time. I watched a prosthetic artery embolization webinar last week; it was superb. And you know, again, as you said, a great job for Helen and helping to maintain this. Of course, it's no surprise that you are on the leading edge of uh, a procedure like geniculate artery embolization, which I think so far has shown great promise as uh, as a, you know, a treatment option that we can offer a, a challenging patient population. So. I thought I'd ask you to just start by it, you know, telling us when and how you started offering geniculate artery arteriovenousization.
0: So for the um, for the hemor- um we have we have had you know a few cases here and there, and so I started to talk to a couple of uh, orthopedic surgeons and just wondered what they do with this uh, recurrence. Uh, Hemarthrosis in some of those patients post knee surgery, and it happened that they were really at that time dealing with a few of those patients. They didn't know what to do, and they were planning to do redo surgery. And uh, uh, then they they say, "Well, you know what? There is no risk. Let's try." So we tried a couple of them, and actually the result was very good at that time. So it's uh, then they started to send a little bit more patients, and so that was about about mostly uh, hemarthroses, and then. Because we have created some good relationship with them, uh, I started to have one of my partners to take a lead on uh, writing a protocol for geniculate artery embolization for osteoarthritis, and and we we saw a really positive reaction from them, and we have we have worked uh, very closely with them to to finalize the protocol, and um, so they, I think they have been very receptive so far. We'll see how what will happen with. When we really open our study, and after a couple of patients in to see what would be the relationship at that time,
1: I'll, I'll be interested to hear the story eventually of, of how we figured out that this could be a palliative treatment option for pain secondary to osteoarthritis. You know, I, I love the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for prosthetic artery emulsification, how it was. Yeah, yeah, you, know, right? you know, I mean that uh, we someone, you know. There was a case report where somebody treated a patient for uh, hematuria, and the patient had you know profound symptomatic improvement for BPH. You know, how did we sure. figure out that this is an option for osteoarthritis?
0: Yeah, so I think I think really um, all of credit goes to Yuji uh, Okuno. As you know, he's yeah the great great intervention radiologist from Japan. And I I from what I know, and I think we need to really ask him. But he has also been trained uh, in um, orthopedic medicine, not surgery. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So he has been, uh, and I think he has also a very reputable family as a member as orthopedic surgeon. So by being involved with that and being involved in IR, he started to realize what uh, the literature is actually talking about is that Contrary as what we have learned in medical school that osteoarthritis is a wear and tear problem, there may be more into this. And one of the idea was that, you know, in most of us, normal cartilage, it's um, actually acting as the anti-angiogenesis organ to balance the um, synovium that is actually provoking more angiogenesis. So there is a normal balance between, in a normal person, between angiogenesis and anti-angiogenesis effect of normal cartilage. But with, with, in patients with OA, <laughs> we have realized that, excuse me, actually patients with, uh, will start to replace the type of cartilage they have with a different type of collagen. And that collagen is not as efficient in terms of preventing os- angiogenesis. So there is the imbalance between angiogenesis provoked by synovium that is actually mediated with a lot of substances like uh, cytokine. And so this imbalance seems to be provoking the osteoarthritis more than the wear and tear. I think there is, like everything else in medicine, there are multiple factors, but so that's why he just came with an idea of saying, you know what, it's not only inflammation, maybe if we embolize the hyperhemia, we will also improve the organ and uh, the tissue. And so that's how I started that. And then in the meantime, there have been a lot of animal study confirming that theory. And we actually did a, my study here at University of Minnesota where we tear one of the ligament in the knee and had the other knee as the control. and we actually did micro CT evaluation of the knee after a couple of weeks of trauma to one of the knee and we realized that there has been significant increase in number of unnamed vessels in the, the damaged knee. So the question is always, is the angiogenesis a reaction or actually the cause of this? But whatever is the, the final uh, verdict, I think it's all started from genius, I think risk taking of Okuno and that's, that's what we do in IR, you know, the, when you refer to PAE, John Demerit was the one who started that accidentally and the same thing happened for uterine fibroid, you know, I remember at the very early days of uterine fibroid, I was in Europe and I did my first case of UFE in, two, in 1996, I always say to Jim, I did it before Jim's piece started in the US, but <laughs> It doesn't make me as smart as Jim Smith. Jim Smith, but what what was hap- what happened there was exactly the same thing. They they were embolizing some of these patients with fibroid for uh, bleeding, and they wanted to prepare this patient for surgery, and a lot of patient cancelled their surgery. So, uh, accident has uh, helped us a lot. But here, I think uh, there was a lot of personal inputs from uh, Dr. Okuno. So I think we you know we have the benefit of uh, you know.
1: Your unique perspective and having watched this happen with, yeah, you know, uterine fibroid embolization and then prosthetic artery embolization and and now you know this is a roughly a similar procedure, but you know following its course, you know where do you think we are in in terms of evidence and, and what needs to come next? What do we need to see in the literature before you
0: know this is something that we can start offering patients? Yeah, that's an, a really excellent question. I think, I think there are. The data is very, very limited. As you know, right. you, I, you guys have done a, um, an interview about two years ago. And so since then, the amount of quality papers in the literature have been very limited. However, the good news is that there are this Genesis try, trial in, in Europe and mostly led by UK by a great, great interventional radiologist, uh, Mark Little, who who has uh, done a really amazing work on uh, starting this. As you know, uh, UK has been phenomenal in helping with UFE data and with PAE data. And their system is just uh, uh, set up in a way where the turf problem is always in the second plan. They just want to know and they try and they they know. (laughs) So that's that's one of the things that I, I think I am really eager to hear the outcome of that. Dr. Padia uh, Seed from uh, UCLA has uh, finished his recruitment of an FDA IDE study. Hopefully, COVID has delayed a little bit his uh, six-month follow-up, but I think he is, uh, is getting ready uh, to bring that to the market and and excuse me to, to the literature and try to publish that data. So I think, I think what we need uh, at this point, really what I said a couple of years ago to Sonny when he called me about what he wants to do. And I said, you know, if we want to get involved with this, we need to look at it in a really purely academic approach, but we want to know if it works. And if it works, what are the ideal patients and what are the patient that that need alternative treatment what are the uh, complications and to do that we need a lot of good and healthy trials and I think one other good thing is that society of interventional radiology right now is uh, putting a lot of effort and I really want to congratulate what they are doing with the foundation and are uh, actually having a very, very active group of people helping with some uh, some new studies. And GAE is one of those target studies that they are planning. So I think that we need really some good quality data. We, I definitely would recommend people not to do it outside any protocol and resist the, uh, the urge of uh, just saying, well, I have a patient who wants to, or she wants this to be done and let's do it. But I think with with the preliminary result that I have seen, and with the the evaluation of the cause and benefits, I truly think that this is going to be an amazing area for IR in the future. But we we just need to be patient.
1: I, I think you're right, and you know I mean we we talked about this before. But one of the unique things about doing this as you know palliative treatment options, you know you compare this to fibroid embolization or prostatic artery embolization. Your patients, you know, we are positioned in direct competition to, you know, urologists and OBGYNs in these patients, whereas patients with osteoarthritis are, are a challenging patient population for orthopedists and, and family practitioners, stuff like that. You know, we would be helping them with the population that they, and then everyone has struggled. And you know, it's also a very interesting point you bring up, you know, your, your conversation with Sonny and, and, you know. The other people that are doing this, something I've always wondered, you know, for something investigational like this, is there much collaboration between different institutions in planning these protocols? I mean, because one of the arguments that was made against prostatic artery embolization, and and particularly our our data, was that early on, especially that that, you know there was just really so much heterogeneity in study design that it was really hard to get the signal from the noise. And I I think that was one of the arguments that the urology community had made against PAE is just that, you know, the quality of data was was relatively poor. So, you know, when you're looking at your own trial, like how are you basically setting this up in comparison to other trials in order to get the best quality data, but also to add something useful, you know, in in terms of basically what what we're showing?
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Mike, this is an amazing, amazing question. And I think you are so right. And, you know, this this has always been my approach is that I... I And I have done that with my PAE study and gastric embolization trial. We we work on submitting a multidisciplinary protocol and uh, run it by FDA uh, and if FDA approves it, we go through IRB. Now, I think I explained to you, but our IRB locally is extremely, extremely difficult and so uh, our protocol was approved by FDA more than a year ago, and we are still going back and forth with IRR. We finally, they approved our protocol, but we have to send it back to FDA. But what I was going to get back to your point is that not only we have to do good studies, I think SIR and other institutions, even guest research committees, we are ready all to help to evaluate those protocols and make sure to make the good comments about how these protocols can be improved but also I think we have to be open to share those protocols with other centers and my opinion has always been let's let's do a study and just include five six strong scientific divisions in the in and we have a lot of those in this country and and across the world, so include everybody. Maybe have a central IRB uh, and just do something multidisciplinary quickly with attention to the quality of the study and involve involve the other stakeholder. Uh, you know, I think I think the PAE you mentioned is a very good example. It started with two groups that are outside the US, but their their involvement uh, of uh, urologists at the beginning, at least for Portugal, I know it was not very ideal. And and then in the US, uh, there is a lot of problem in terms of recruiting patients because most patients prefer to go to minimally invasive if they know the the risk oh. and benefit. And so we have we have those challenges that didn't help with the PAE. I hope we can le- review that for, uh, for geniculate artery embolization in a more Uniform and more collaborative approach, and I think that would be that would be really the the way to go
1: forward. I agree, and I, I think you know you make a great point. It is a you know this procedure and with these patients, it is a very unique opportunity for us to offer something in a in a truly collaborative manner, much more so than we can with other procedures where you know we're really placed in direct competition. So. Let's get into the procedure a little bit. You know, I, I have actually only done this for hemorrhorthrosis, and you know, one of the things I had, had struggled with is is figuring out the best way to do it in terms of how many arteries to treat and and to what degree. So, you know, if if you don't mind sharing this, you know, how you're planning to do this in your own trial, what does the procedure look like for how you're you're planning to do it in your trial?
0: Yeah. So there are two uh, different way of doing it, depending if you are talking about hemarthrosis or uh, osteoarthritis. I think for hemarthrosis, the goal here is really to go after all the area of you know, hyperhemia or blushes that we see. And usually there are multiple vessels. As you know, there are six to seven main vessels going to that area of uh, the knee post, post-surgery. And we need to, we need to uh, go as much as possible to most of those arteries. And the reason I say most of those arteries, is because especially with the hardware, it's very difficult to, to see every, in order to catheterize it. And sometimes these procedures for hematologies can be very long and, and sometimes painful for, for us in terms of trying to find the best angle to be around the, uh, the prosthesis and to find the origin of the artery. So my my explanation to patients is that we are trying to go as far as possible to remove, remove all the blush uh, from uh, every arteries. However, sometimes it may take uh, long and we may have to do it in a couple of sessions, mostly two sessions. But what we have also realized is that if you, remove the majority of the hyperhemia still will have a good result for uh, osteoarthritis usually as you know the majority of symptoms are in medial compartment and there are usually two main arteries going there is the descending genicular and superior medial artery. And so those arteries are usually, especially the descending genicular, are the most easier uh, to catheterize. And there is so much communication between the two that I think um, you can sometimes uh, use uh, one to get to the other one and uh, and treat. And so there are less need for arterial catheterization for osteoarthritis now. To the technical embolization, we, especially for haemarthrosis, as my majority of experience is also in the uh, post-surgical need, is that we move from a heavy-handed embolization to really small embolization. And the goal is just, as I say, to remove the hyperhemia. Okay. So, the and in osteoarthritis, the goal is to what how, how the way of Kuna says, or did say we want to get take an abnormal artery and make it normal. We don't want to block the artery, and so that's that's I think um, the difference between the two uh, techniques.
1: Is, is there any difference in how you might approach this in terms of embolics for hemarthrosis versus osteoarthritis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Very good question. So I started to do to use 100 to 300 micron embospheres for hemoarthrosis. But I realized that actually there there is. A, I had one case of skin uh, changes. I would say mm-hmm. uh, it was not skin necrosis. It was mostly livido reticularis. And since then, I moved to three to five hundred microns. Uh, you, the goal here is really uh, to reduce the blush. You don't you don't inject too much particles. If I always say to like partners, if you start to see that you're injecting more than three to four cc of a diluted embolus, you are embolizing somewhere else because that artery cannot handle more than that. It doesn't need more than that. I think from from our protocol and what Mark Little and and Sid Padia and Okuno are doing, we are going to 100 to 300 for OA. We don't want to go below that. I think, as you know, there is a difference between the permanent material we use in the Western countries and the uh, imipenem uh, particles that are antibiotics uh, used by Okuno. They are much smaller size, but they are rapidly resolvable material. We don't know exactly if their effect is embolization effect or anti-inflammatory effect. I think everybody thinks it's embolization, but, but for, uh, the rest of the protocols, everybody uses, uh, equivalent of 100 to 300 uh, micron embossers. Now, 100 to 300 microns embossers probably translate to 250 to 350 PVA and maybe to 100, 150 uh, emboss. Okay. I read a, uh, an abstract last night on the, uh, in vitro characteristics
1: of the, uh, the imipidinem celastin particles that they used for that. And, uh, mm-hmm. basically it, it's like most of them were smaller than like 30 microns, just tiny. Um, okay. it, it actually changed over size. I mean, it changed over time. It's really interesting. So yeah, you know, I, I think with this mm-hmm. is that what, for uh prostatic artery mobilization, I think it probably Kind of take time to parse out the best way to do this, you know,
0: in terms of both particles and endpoints. What is very important, though, uh, as you, you are right, this emipenem uh, can vary between 10 to 70 micron. But what is really important, and I think I can't emphasize that enough for any of knee embolization, the amount of particles you need to, for embolization is extremely low. Extremely low. So you guys have done uh, prostate artery embolization. I have seen some of the posts and uh, you, you see when we are embolizing um, PAE, sometimes we do, we get two, three cc in and there is no forward flow. and start to be panicking. Maybe maybe we haven't embolized enough. And some people like Carnavale, Francisco, perfect the technique because as I, I always give him hard time because we are good friends. I say, well, this is to reassure the physician's stress level by going more deep and give more particles because you think that two to three cc's may, may not be enough. But in average, we do a little bit more than that in per artery for PAE, but for geniculate artery, man, if you, if you are injecting more than two, three cc's per artery, there is something wrong. And so that's probably the time. message. <laughs> To, to keep in mind. Are you diluting it to the same degree that you might for
1: prosthetic artery mobilization? Yeah. You yeah think I, point?
0: I think, I think uh, per protocol, yes. But I think it's a great point, uh, Mike. I, I actually think that why not dilute it twice and be more patient and just yeah. index less amount of particles, especially some of the particles that are used in the market they have different compressibility requirement. They may right. uh, jam a little bit more. So I would say my personal uh, preference would be to dilute it twice and it takes much longer to get to that same
1: result. I yeah. your curiosity, when you're doing the procedure, well, I, I guess it may, it may depend on if you're doing unilateral, bilateral treatment, what is your preferred access artery for creating? Mm-hmm. That's a very
0: good point. Right now, we always did up and over just yeah, mostly because the majority of our patients were a little bit on the heavier side. I know that they, uh, there is a trend to go ipsilateral, undergrade yeah. puncture for the patient that are with a reasonable BMI. I think that that makes your life much easier. A lot of time, if you do that, you can just use the, uh, micro puncture set and don't even need to go and upsize it. Interesting. Yeah. And so you can, you can really get away from a a better uh, and faster approach. But right now we, we, majority of my patients, I go up and over. I mean, we, you know, when I talked to, uh, to Sunny and Ori about this, you know, we, we
1: even actually briefly discussed the option of retrograde tibial access as just because some of these artery origins have really challenging angles, but you know we're that's pretty very, good to from above. But and
0: that, that's the reason I wanted to ask. Yeah, uh, that's a very smart way when when you fail. But I I just want I think I think ten years from now you would uh, we all we all feel much more comfortable. We know the uh, the complications rate and the risk level of this. So one thing I just want to keep in mind is the majority of these patients are older patients, And uh, sometimes the vascular approach, a vascular access may be challenging. So I would say uh, it is definitely a very smart way of doing it, but I would wait before adding extra risk to sure. this patient until we really know much more. But of course, in when you are in a case and you have some issues, you need to be creative, and that's a very creative way of doing. It. So, I'm interested to hear your opinion on this.
1: You know, in Japan, especially, we're seeing this procedure done in uh, in numerous joints. And you know, to a lesser extent, the United States. Do you think the results that we have for osteoarthritis in the knee are applicable to other joints, or do you think these have to be taken on a joint by joint basis
0: in terms of literature? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent question too. I think uh, this, in my opinion you can't extrapolate the data from knee to the shoulder or to the, uh, to the elbow, but I agree. But what is important is that the, uh, principal mechanism is not much different. So you have a, uh, angiogenesis problem that is, or the cause or the consequences of what you have, disease you have. And so, uh, in, in the, uh, guest vanguard session of Kuno. we asked him to give a lecture on sports medicine and embolization and he talked about tendinopathy uh, in uh, epicondylitis like tennis elbow or in patient with jumper's knee he actually showed a case of Achilles tendon inflammation and embolization and so and as you know he has started his private practice center and he does about hundred of you know high level sports patients sportive patients some of them are really professional and so I think there is definitely a role for embolization on those patients, especially if we learn to go and do minimal embolization few few uh, particles and you know really go to the point, remove only the blush don't be too uh, to Cowboy, I think there is there is a role and he showed a lot of impressive images and results. But again, like anything else, we need data. Well, it, you know, it's certainly an
1: exciting time for this. It, it kind of feels like it felt like, you know, kind of in the mid, you know, around 2007, when we were seeing, you know, it felt like for prosthetic arterialization, like a case K-series every week. And I, I hope it it continues to follow the course that it's going on now. And, you know, if it's okay with you, it would be really helpful when we release this podcast if, if we could include some of the links to some of the webinars or conferences you guys have done a guest on this topic. Uh, yeah, I
0: would love to. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think I, think I am a believer of um, uh, joint effort, to, especially in education. And uh, yeah, anything we could do to collaborate with you guys and would be with uh, pleasure.
1: That's that's what we're hoping to do is find any way we can do it, you know, improve the quality of our content and help our listeners. What
0: else have I missed on this topic that you think it's important to cover? You know, one thing is very important is the patient selection uh, for, I think, for mostly the osteoarthritis. And to your point, there are a group of patients that... The uh, orthopedic surgeons or uh, rheumatologists, they don't have a lot of options. is the mild to moderate OA uh, patient. Usually they are uh, getting uh, conservative treatment as you know, the usual ice packs and um, and then uh, pain meds, and anti-inflammatory drugs and uh, HA joint injection. There are a couple of ideas, but there is really not much answer. So I think those are the group of patients we should target if we want to uh, make a difference. And of course, patients with higher risk of surgical treatments as we uh, as usually of our, our patients are usually the most complicated patient for surgery. So those are some of the candidates for OA that we need to consider. Other than that, I think we covered most of the uh, information and uh, I really look forward to see some of those uh, trials uh, coming out with good papers and get this started.
1: So do I and I eagerly weigh the results of your own. You know, we, we all in our community, are. You know, continue to be grateful for everything that's coming out of University of Minnesota, but everything also that's coming out of Guest. Thank you, as always, for you know your efforts. Thank you for taking the time to join us today.
0: Oh, it was a real pleasure. And, uh, and I congratulate you guys again for, for
1: doing this. Uh, and thank you to all of our listeners uh, and wishing everybody a great rest of the weekend.